Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before you start this episode, this is just a reminder that History Hack does have a Patreon account and a Ko-fi account as well. You can either register to subscribe and throw us a few quid every month or simply buy us enough caffeine to continue through to the next episode. Because frankly, we run on fumes most of the time. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We are out of Lockie and Churchill's wheelhouse a little bit and going back into the dim and distant, well, it's that period between the dinosaurs and the 1789 French Revolution, in which I know nothing. But, yeah, basically um, nothing happened, did it? <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. Here we go, Alex. Oh, right. You've undoubtedly heard Simon Elliott's dulcet tones before on this uh, podcast. He's very enthusiastic. And he's a book writing machine, frankly. I don't know how he does it. He's talked to us about the Hispania Legion, among other topics, uh, and Roman pirates, uh, Britain's Roman pirate king, I think he did as well. But he's written books about the Greeks at war. And we have to get him back for this one. Alexander the Great versus Julius Caesar, which we definitely need a podcast on. But he's here today to talk about the latest book, which is about Roman special forces. Hello, Simon. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me back on. I love working with you guys. Oh, we love working with you. We just wind you up and let you go. It's brilliant. <laughs> and I'm sitting here with Hector the archaeological dog. So if you can hear any snoring, it's my golden doodle who actually does all the hard work for me. Brilliant. Right. Okay. Before we start, we should say because I, I reckon there are military historians already throwing up their hands to go. Well, it doesn't qualify as special forces. How are we defining special forces for the, for our purposes today? Well, that's a really fantastic question um, to ask, actually, Alex. It's the, uh, basically the first chapter of the book. It's called Roman Special Forces and Special Ops. Basically, I define what special forces are today. So the key thing is to come up with a, a definition of what special forces are today. And then each subsequent chapter uses a set of criteria that I've devised in that chapter one to look at candidate forces in the Roman world, see if they would be described as special forces today. So it's a very structured way of approaching it. Special forces, as you know, is a qu- sort of quite loaded word in the, world, in the age in which we live. Um, I mean, I can remember sort of the, the 1980 Iranian embassy siege and seeing it on television for the first time when the SAS sort of exploded into public consciousness properly for the first time. Probably since that point, actually, and I make the, 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 that reference in the book, since that point, special forces are a catch-all term for, for any kind of elite warrior, uh, and whether that's right or not, is problematic. Um, and in, in, certainly in terms of foreign policy and defence policy, they're often seen as a sort of a get-out-of-jail card for politicians and military leaders today. Um, so if I come up, what I, what I did was I came up with a series of uh, criteria, uh, in actual fact four, uh, and I decided that if anything either then or now uh, more or less covered all four, then they are special forces. So those four criteria, which are in Chapter 1 of the book, are Special forces are elite volunteers chosen through a demanding selection process. Two, special forces are uniquely trained for non-regular warfare with special skill sets, a bespoke esprit de corps, and access to specialist equipment. Three, special forces are used to secure, are used to secure 
operational and strategic advantage rather than for normal military operations. Therefore, they are not merely elite combat units fielded in the normal line of battle. And finally, special forces can be totally deniable. Excellent. That's interesting. That, yeah, that's deniable. But maybe we'll come back to that. But um, be- before we sort of get into the elite formations necessarily, let's let's talk about sort of specialisation uh, for just a moment, if we can. What sort of specialist units were? Because I, I think about the Roman army, I think about this tremendous uniformity, really. But they must have had specialist units for specialist tasks. What sort of things did they have? Again, it's a great question. And again, in the book, actually, the next chapter, actually, chapter two, I look at what I call elite and specialist Roman troops. The idea being to to look at them and then say they weren't special forces. So, for example, specialists in the Roman the Roman military, um, the military we're talking about in the Roman Empire is when the when the empire's at its height in the principate phase, the first half of the Roman Empire, and also the later phase of the Roman Republic. And largely in this period, the Roman military is dominated by heavy infantry, the legionaries. And then once you get into the empire, you can add to them the auxiliaries, which are also basically line of battle infantry and also cavalry. Uh, they straightforward Roman troops, your legionaries, auxiliaries and, and foot and auxiliary cavalry. But within that, you have specialists. So, for example, in a legion of the Principate, 5,500 men, 1,200 of them are actually specialists at doing things in addition to fighting. So they carry the kit. They've got the scutum shield, the lorica segmentata armor, the imperial Gallic helmet, the pillum uh, weighted throwing javelin, the gladius hispaniensis sword, and everything else. Uh, but in addition, these 1,200 uh, legionaries are also specialists in doing other stuff. It might be building. They could be masons, who, or they could be um, carpenters, or they could be fletchers making arrows. They could be tile makers, etc., which means the legion is actually a, sort of a, an integral unit which can do everything within itself when it's on the march and doesn't need a big big train following it to keep it in the field. Outside of those 1,200 specialists within the 5,500 legionaries, you also have other Roman troop types doing things. They could be equipped, for example, with very, very strange weapons for their days. I mean, uh, the, the first examples in the West we have of crossbows are with, with Roman auxiliaries or staff slings. Uh, you could get really weird and wonderful things. So when you go to the mid-Republic, you get uh, the Romans inventing something called the anti-elephant wagon to fight the elephants being used by Pyrrhus of Ipirus when he invades Italy. These are wagons which have spikes and flaming pots and, and, and trumpets blowing noises to scare elephants. And in fact... We also know the, elef- the, the Romans, to fight elephants, actually um, used pigs, which they daubed in tar, set on fire and pointed in the direction of the elephant and let go to terrify the elephants and probably terrify me as well. And also in the age in which we live, very cruel. So the Romans had specialists within the legion and specialists without the legion as well. And in addition to that, Andrew, they also had elite troops so the obvious one that you will see uh, in gladiator or um, any movie about the roman world of the praetorian guard so the praetorian guard were elite troops they were they were meant to be the best of the best often they weren't by the way but they were meant to be the best of the best when they're fighting uh, on behalf of the emperor either accompanying him into battle or on campaign um but they weren't special forces and so what i do is actually i use those four criteria at the end of chapter two and i consider specialists and elite troops to say, do they tick off all those four boxes? No, they don't. And that means we can rule them out. In terms of those elite troops, just take us through those. So, yep, Praetorian Guard, uh, the wankers from Gladiator, 
uh, the, <laughs> the guy. Well, it's the guy that um, used to be with Maximus, isn't it? The, Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, the turncoat. Yeah, yeah, he's gone off and become a Praetorian guard in that and that. But what other elite troops have the Romans got? Um, so at the time we're talking about in terms of elite troops, I mean, you've got the Emperor Septimius Severus, for example, the great warrior emperor from Africa, who, when he campaigned against the Parthians, so the Persians in the east, he created three brand new legions, Legio 1, 2 and 3 Parthica. Legio 2 Parthica became his own pet legion. And that was an elite formation because at that time, and we're talking in the 190s, AD 190s, um, when the emperor, um, um, uh, the Roman Empire at its height, at that time, the legions were based all around the fringes of the empire. So they weren't based within the empire at all. They were based along the limes, the, 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 the frontiers, except Legio II Parthica. So when Severus comes back to Rome, because this is his own pet legion and elite legion, he chooses to base this 34 kilometers from Rome in a new camp he builds. And that's specific, specifically done because he hated the Senate and the elite people living in Rome. So what he wanted to do was send a message that if you don't behave, um, this is going to happen to you. Not only do I have the Praetorian Guard in Rome, I have actually a full fat frontline Roman legion 34 kilometers away. So that's an elite unit. And also what you tend to find as well is the, the Roman Romans are very good at nicking other people's ideas. They're, they're, they're fantastic at it. Um, so let's use an example again with the Parthians fighting in the East. The Parthians were largely mounted opponents and nine tenths of their warriors were mounted archers sort of running around sort of firing arrows from a distance but one tenth of them were actually really elite troops the other nobility were called cataphracts they were fully armored in scale or chain mail man and horse with a two-handed thrusting lance um, and the romans copied them so the romans had their own akitas cataphractari which they developed from fighting um the persians because they thought it was a good idea so you've got elite troop types of all all types Ultimately, at the very top of these elite troop types, Alex, you've got the Praetorian Guard, but none of them, by my definition, were special forces. So, all right. Now we're talking about them um, adopting fighting styles uh, from elsewhere, um, gathering information from other parts of the world and then employing that. What, what were the Romans' abilities like to gather information around? Did they have a, like an intelligence system for um, collating useful stuff from overseas? You know what, Andrew, one of the things that really surprised me researching the book, and by the way, there's some really frontline cutting edge and brand new research here, because this is the first book ever written about Roman special forces. Um, the reason why I read the book, by the way, is because lots of people like the Romans, lots of people like special forces, so I figured it might sell well. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be turned out to be one of the most fantastic pieces of uh, fun research I ever did, because it turns out that early on in the Republic, the Romans actually didn't uh, um, overtly anyway take for intelligence gathering at all. The, the Roman Senate, the elite class in Roman society, this is like 0.005% of Roman society, the very top of the aristocracy, so the very top of Roman society, the only ones who could call themselves patricians, everybody else were plebs, even other no forms of nobility. So the patricians, the senators, they thought they were above all that. So they, they didn't want to copy the dodgy sort of um, Carthaginians and their intelligence gathering in the Western Mediterranean or the, the Hellenistic kingdoms and their intelligence gathering in the Eastern Mediterranean. They were above it. Uh, and actually, it didn't count against them at the time because their military was so successful that, that it wasn't an issue. But it does become an issue as you enter empire. So 27 BC, Augustus, the last man standing in the last round of Roman Republican civil wars is acclaimed uh, imperator, so emperor, 
by the Senate for the first time. That's the end of the Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. Uh, and Augustus is very, very pragmatic. I mean, he brings Pax, he's famous within the Roman world for bringing Pax Romana, the Roman peace with him, because you've had a century of really sanguineous civil wars, you know, where you could list all the people who died, Pompey, Caesar, etc. Um, so, so, so he wants to make sure this peace is maintained and he stays as the first emperor. Um, so he starts employing, uh, informers to, to report directly to him in, in the imperial palace on the Palatine Hill. Um, and he calls them delatories. So the first intelligence gathering officers you get in the Roman world are called delatories, informers, to use your exact words, actually, Andrew, who inform on, on the part of Augustus. And it's fascinating because from that time, the Roman state gradually comes to terms with the fact it needs to actually have a proper intelligence gathering operation. And what, what I found was so amazing was the organisation within the imperial administration that the emperors in the first century began to focus on to create this intelligence gathering network, the official one for the first time, was called the Frumentum, uh, which was actually the Roman military's supply section. So you have the Frumentum and the Frumentari. The Frumentari are uh, NCOs and officers in the Roman military who spend their entire time going along the road networks and maritime transport networks of the Roman Empire, uh, uh, making sure that all the grain supplies work in the soldiers are fed, etc. Now, the key thing there, of course, is they're permanently plugged in to the imperial administration and military network. And so actually, when you think it through, it's genius to look there to form your first intelligence gathering network because they know everything anyway. So all you're doing is you're officiating what they're already doing as an intelligence gathering network. By the time of the Roman emperor Domitian, the last of the Flavian emperors, my, one of my least favorite emperors is an idiot. Um, very unpopular. He was so unpopular that he decided to formalize this intelligence gathering operation in the AD 90s as the Frumentum. So the name changes from being the military supply section in the administration to being the intelligence gathering operation with the Frumentari. Okay. Let's talk about the fact that Rome didn't have a police force. So that devolves onto the army as well, doesn't it? How do they fare in that role? That's a great question. You know, it's interesting, Alex. You look at the, um, look at Rome at the height. There's a million people living in Rome. Yeah. A million people, uh, without initially a police force as we know it today. So what the Roman, what the Roman, what the Romans cleverly did in the, in the imperial phase of Roman history, the empire, is they basically copied what they were doing in the military. So you, you have the urban cohorts effectively. Um, so in Rome, you have three, um, regiments of uh, urbanis cohortes, um, who are basically, uh, like gendarmes. So they're military organization, uh, based on the organization of the legions. Uh, and if you could see their equipment, they're still armed with a scutum, probably no armor. And because, um, you're not allowed to carry a weapon within the religious boundary or the Pomerania, the religious boundary of a Roman settlement. So they're not allowed to carry swords. So they carry a cudgel. So you have urban cohorts eventually who become gendarmes. And then you also have the bucket men. So the bucket men are the uh, cohortes vigils and the vigils actually the firemen. Hence they're being the bucket men because they carried a bucket to put fires out and they eventually also become part of the police force. You don't have urban cohorts or cohorts of vigils though bucket men in every roman town so where you don't you just all, all you do is you have to rely on the roman military 
And one of the things that's worth remembering there, guys, is that this is the pre-modern world. In the Roman world, um, there's no such thing as a civil service that we have today. There's no such thing as nationalized industries as I grew up with. There's no such thing as uh, a free market where you can raise capital to build big things. So the, the Roman state had only one organization to turn to to do stuff, including policing, if it needed it doing, and it was the military. The Roman military basically was the glue that kept the Roman Empire together. Well, keeping that in mind then, how does, I mean, and, and combining maybe a couple of elements uh, here, let's talk about the, the Roman secret service um, and kind of, I guess, intelligence gathering within that kind of policing and army setup. So you start off with the Frumentari, so the great the grain supply officers who then become the intelligence gathering officers. But what they're doing is basically this is internal information, feeding it back into the emperor. And that's fit for purpose until you get to the middle of the third century when something really catastrophic happens to the Roman Empire, which is called the crisis of the third century. So it begins in AD 235 with the accession of the last Severan emperor, Alexander Severus, and it ends in AD 284, a long period of time with the accession of the great, another great Roman emperor, Diocletian. Uh, and within that, you get all sorts of things going wrong. You get the the Parthians in the east become the Sassanid Persians, who become the first symmetrical enemy who one-on-one -on -one can take the Romans on and win. You get the first deep incursions across the Rhine and Danube by Germans and Goths, uh, uh, penetrating as far south as Italy, terrifying for the Romans. You get multiple usurpations and civil war. And crucially, you get uh, topical for the age in which we live with COVID, the plague of Cyprian, which lasts 20 years, which is a devastating plague, probably smallpox. Uh, and within all those, it almost implodes the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire almost ends um, in the middle of the third century in this crisis. But when the Roman Empire emerges under Diocletian, he has to drag it kicking and screaming uh, into a new form of modernity in, in, in Roman terms. And he changes the nature of the empire. So you move from the principate to the dominate. And in the principate, the emperor is the, it's a conceit, but he's the first among equals. In the dominate, he's not. He's an Eastern potentate and everybody bows and kneels before him and lies on the floor. And one manifestation of this change in the Diocletian is he institutes a reform of the frumentum, frumentum and the frumentari, and he replaces them with two interestingly different kinds of uh, um, uh, um, intelligence officer. You have the agentes in rebus and the notari. Uh, the agentes in rebus are the equivalent of our sort of um, MI6 or CIA externally facing. So these for the first time are intelligence operatives who are operating externally from the borders of the empire, not within the empire only. And then you have the notari, the note takers, who are more akin to the FBI or MI5. And, and that, that proves highly successful in terms of intelligence gathering. And it goes all the way through and beyond the end of the empire in the, in the, in the West in 84, 76. And in fact, in some of the post-Roman Germanic successor kingdoms, where although it might sound dramatic, effectively what you have is German elites taking over from Roman elites, but the rest of the society staying the same, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Vandals, etc. You still have notari operating for them. So it proves so successful that even post-Roman rulers use this system. But crucially, Andrew, through my four criteria, even though these are the James Bonds of the ancient world, they are not special forces.
So, I mean, just the Notari, how did they operate then? Did they, uh, I don't know, in, integrate within kind of societies across the across the empire? Or did they have like a, were they known as Notari and they would go and inspect? Or how, how did it, how did it work? Great question. The Notari, basically, these are these are submilitary operatives. So they wear uniforms most of the time, unless they're undercover. And, and we have some fantastic examples of Notari uh, in this inward role. So, for example, you have the Emperor Constantius II, who has to fight um, a usurper called Magnentius in the 350s. And when Magnentius finally beats this usurper, and he usurpations in Gaul and Britain, always in Britain. Britain is the wild west of the Roman Empire. Um, so every time there's a usurpation in the West, Britain's involved. So Magnentius is defeated, Constantius II then sends this chap, an Otari, who's called Paul the Chain, Paulus Catenus, Paul the Chain. He sends him to Britain with orders to bring the recalcitrant nobility of Britain to order. And he's, he's got this, <laughs> he's called Paul the Chain, apparently, because his means of interrogating people to find out if they were supporting the usurper previously or not was to slowly and slowly bury them in chains until they were crushed to death. And then, of course, when they died, all the land was appropriated by the emperor. So the emperor really loved him. So he was a hated figure, absolutely hated figure. So the, And in Britain, he was so um, so aggressive in chaining people <laughs> to death that the British vicarius, so this is the guy that runs Britain for the emperor, used to be called a governor, now called a vicarius, he actually tries to assassinate Paul the Chain and fails and so commits suicide. So so these notari actually could be incredibly powerful, although with Paul the Chain, it doesn't go very well for him ultimately because uh, when Julian becomes the emperor uh, in the late 350s, Julian, the apostate, uh, tries him, fails him guilty of treason, then burns him at the stake. <laughs> Look, his face is just like completely stunned right now. <laughs> I, can I think you should take a still of that actually and put it on the pod. <laughs> Paul the there you go, Paul the Chain. So these notari, to serious answer your question, these notari are very, very powerful individuals indeed, right next to the emperor. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay. Let's talk about speculatores. Uh, so how is, how is the Roman army policing itself within? So in terms of military police. Uh, Lockie and I know many former military police, don't we, Lockie? Um, <laughs> they're they're a special breed. We love them. Uh, but how how does this operate in Roman times? Um, and they get to execute people, do they not? They they do. So, firstly, well pronounced speculatories. Specu so so firstly, within the Roman legion, right? Self policing. Roman military units are self policing. Uh, uh, re remember that um, 
if a Roman military unit misbehaves badly enough, the emperor can order a decimation against them, which means that uh, they all line up and then one of the centurions walks down, counts one to ten, and then one to ten, and then one to ten and so on. And every tenth person then gets beaten to death by the other nine. Oh, the That's Italians cool. are pretty much still doing that in World War One, aren't they, Lockie? Yeah, pretty much. Well, certainly the process of hiking some out of line for execution still taking place in, whether it's one in ten or, or different numbers. Yeah, still doing that then. And most of the time for the Romans, it works. I mean, I, I, there, are, there are lots of examples where it may not have worked. In Britain, again, there's quite a few examples, Britain being the Wild West of the Roman Empire. But usually it works. So the Roman military tends to be self-policing. But within the military, sort of in the later Republic, so this is before the time of Augustus, you start getting specialists appearing, uh, doing things outside of the military specialization. So they're being basically hooked out the ranks and be given a new job by either the legate in charge of the legion or the governor of a province or so on. So these aren't the specialists doing clever things in the legion like building stuff. These aren't the specialists posh new weapons this is something now new and totally different and they're called speculatories uh, and it's the the names used as a catch-all for are initially for all these non-specialist military things so people who are guards for the legate or the governor um and also executioners the museum of london just before it closed had um a, a tombstone of exactly one of these individuals who'd been a legionary for Legio II Augusta based in Caerleon in southeast Wales, but he died in London working on the staff of the governor, and he was a speculatorist, and it's actually alleged in the research of this individual that actually his job was to execute people in the amphitheatre in London, now visible beneath the, the Guildhall Library. So you can really tell a full story about this individual. So you have this name being used for people doing other stuff. Still being paid as a legionary, still legionaries, but now hocked out working for somebody else. Um, by the time you get into the early empire, in fact, actually the later republic, the time of Caesar, first century BC, um, the names narrowed down and now it's being used specifically for scouts. So these aren't scouts who are just, you imagine the legionary spearhead, 5,500 men, cohort after cohort, fully armoured hacking their way through the dark forest of germany then in front of them they'll have pioneers and scouts that's not these guys the speculatories are miles in advance um talking to the local natives getting intelligence etc but the key thing here is i determine in my research they still maintain the umbilical link with their military unit as it's hacking its way through the Teutoburg forest heading for its doom so they're not independent so therefore, I determine by my four criteria, speculatories, while they're special, are not special forces. But they are attached to legions themselves. They are, yeah. They're, they're, they are on a long lead, admittedly, but the umbilical is still there. They're not operating independently. Did they have leeway that other soldiers wouldn't have? I mean, did they have a sort of semi-independent kind of role? I think uh, there, there are... Caesar's very good here for us, by the way, because actually he references their operations directly in his conquest of Gaul uh, four or five times. There's one example, for, uh, there's one example, for example, Andrew, where um, in his 57 BC campaign against the Belgae, and particularly the Nerve tribe within the Belgae, which is the most difficult campaign in the far north of Gaul, so the most, as he saw it, barbarous part of Gaul, 
um, his his uh, line of march was cut off by the Gauls, who actually came close actually to putting him in a situation where he could have been wiped out. And he had to rely on his speculatories to work out a route of retreat so he could extricate his legions, later then going on to defeat the Nervae, the very sanguis, admittedly, but defeat the Nervae at the Battle of the Sabbath. Um, so there you can see a direct example of the speculatories operating, but with that umbilical link uh, still in place. They're not being given a task and then just sent off and waiting until they return six months later, there's direct day-to-day reporting taking place. Right. Well, just going back to their role as sort of military police and executioners, as Alex said, we know a, a few ex-military coppers, and uh, I think terms like "not even their mother loves them." Is there any kind of hints <laughs> as to what the, what the what the general Roman soldiery thought of these people? Um, point number one: the military compared to society are always different uh, and i think that's much more the case actually um in the ancient world in actual fact it's worth remembering here before i actually address your question directly that that people i always argue as alex knows that people of the past are like us but different and in the ancient world a big difference is the attitude to casual violence so it's much more a part of normal life casual violence than it is today um think of the amphitheater for example as a form of entertainment um having said that I think at any stage in history, if you have an individual within an organisation who has authority, then they're going to be even more different and they're going to be unpopular with their comrades. If they, I mean, a great example, just think of the uh, Varus's legions hacking their way through the Teutoburg Forest, three legions to their doom in AD 9, etc. How difficult would it have been as they increasingly got depleted in numbers and predated on by the Germans? Uh, heading for their ultimate doom to actually keep those legionaries and auxiliaries in line doing their job people doing it would have been the individuals given that task within the legions and they certainly would have been unpopular i don't just can you imagine lucky some of the ex-mps that we know can you imagine if they had the actual power to wield life and death as well <laughs> as all the other authority they had that's a great point alex because they did that's a really good point that yeah. they, they really really did i mean if they wanted to slot somebody they slot somebody by that, by that point, there's a great point there, actually, Alex. There's uh, been an excavation reported in the last two or three years along Watling Street. So the, this is the, the, the Kent part where I live, the A2, where in a given settlement, you have a number of prisoners, by the looks of it, bound with skeletons uh, related to the Claudian invasion of AD 43. And the, the, the wound that killed them, the fatal wound, is actually through the back of the neck. So they've literally been slotted while kneeling down and, and bound. And that would have been by legionaries. So... This is a big one. We've been building up to this, haven't we? Who are the exploratores? So you get a plethora of these posh names beginning to appear in the late Republic for various troop types. I mean, I mentioned the delatories, the speculatories, frumentari, um, and, and, uh, and we now have the exploratories. Now, exploratories appear initially at the same time, side by side, speculatories. And it looks as though it's, it's, a, it's a slang, different kind of word people doing the same job as the speculatories but quite quickly it becomes apparent in their written record that their job evolves in a different way and by the time you get to the time of the empire you look at some of the major campaigns of the germans of the romans operating proud of the rhine and danube for example think of varus uh, and his ninth legion uh, lost three legions again in AD 9 you think of um the legions of Marcus Aurelius in the Marcomannic Wars, which we see in the, the movie Gladiator, we've already referenced. Um, there, 
exploratories appear as something very different to speculatories because there's no umbilical. These individuals, these military units, firstly, they get their own military units, so cohort something exploratories. And secondly, it looks as though they've been sent hundreds of kilometres into the enemy interior. So they're operating completely independently um, and uh, they're clearly being used to secure operational and strategic advantage in a variety of ways, targeted assassinations, uh, intelligence gathering at a strategic level, uh, buying off one side to fight another on behalf of the Romans. These are operating completely differently to the speculatories. And actually, with multiple examples to work with, uh, I come to the conclusion that actually these were, by my four criteria, actual special forces. Okay, so going off deep undercover, um, what were they equipped with? Did they have um, their? Like, they kind of had standard Roman kit. Surely, if deniability is uh, is a factor, there's a funny thing you see. The Romans do look a bit of formality, so there is a uniform for speculatory for speculatories and for exploratories. So they do have their own uniform. Um, the officers carry the same staffs of office when they're in uniform uh, as the regular Roman military, uh, and they're organised on regular Roman military lines in cohorts and centuries. The difference is they only wear the uniform, whether on official duty or on parade, uh, within the limes, within the Roman lines. When they're on campaign, the likelihood is, in fact, based on a number of references in my research, and it's in the book, that they're actually dressed like the natives. So we know when they're operating on the eastern frontier, they're equipped as a, a Roman troop type, a regular Roman troop type called Achites Dromedari, which are camel riders, camel riding like cavalry. But in so doing, they're not dressed as Roman troops. They're actually dressed like the local Arab population. So that what they're doing is they're actually on the deep penetration operations, mingling with the natives. And actually, it's fascinating looking at some gravestones from northern Germany dating to the second and third centuries of exploratories, individuals who were in these units. And these individuals in these units have native German names. So what that tells you is the Romans were recruiting them from the native German population on the side of the Rhine and Danube. These weren't sort of regular Roman recruits from the imperial centre in Italy or Spain or North Africa or Syria. These were being hired by the Romans from native populations to work on behalf of the Romans. And you would think maybe, you know, given the example of Arminius, the turncoat who defeats Varus in AD 9, the Romans would be wary of this. But actually, it seems that it worked really well because we have these gravestones of people who served an entire Roman military career, 25 years, by the way, survived and made enough money. Just think how much money it would take to actually have a really fine tombstone um, made in the Roman period. That's a vast amount of money. So they clearly thrived. So the system seems to have worked. The takeout point is the Romans were actually playing to the strengths of the local populations in the regions that they were using the exploratories. So, I mean, my, my sort of follow-up question was going to be uh, along the lines of, are there any examples of them um, proving not to be completely loyal? You know, I think such a vast empire and so many characters and so many examples of treachery and and uh, ambition as much as anything. But no, they sound to, they they're pretty loyal. What I can do there, Andrew, actually, I'll, I'll, we've got one more candidate and then a half candidate to consider. But I'll jump forward to the half candidate for you because you've segued beautifully into it there. So that 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 the, the, the half candidate, the last chapter looks at the very late Roman period of special forces. And there's a very enigmatic name which appears 
in the narrative of a late Roman historian, a very important one called Ammianus Marcellinus. And these are called the Ariani. And the Ariani are mentioned twice, and they're based north of Hadrian's Wall in Britain. So they're based north of the northern frontier. And the role they have appears to be exactly uh, exploratories. So I think these are actually, it's almost a nickname for British exploratories. And there, the references are very negative. You get the crossing in the 340s of a Roman emperor called Constans in the middle of winter, which is unheard of, by the way, crossing this channel in the pre-modern era in the middle of winter, because the chances are you're not going to make it. But he does make it. Why would he do that in the middle of winter? Well, he does that because there's, a, there's trouble in the north. There's always trouble in Britain, always trouble on the northern frontier. And the trouble in the north reference then is problems with the Ariani. And it looks as though the Ariani were actually switching sides, but they weren't disbanded. And then in the 360s, specifically 367, you have an event called the, 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 the Grand, Great or Grand Conspiracy, uh, where Ammianus Marcellinus again tells us that the Picts, so those living in modern Scotland, uh, the Atacotti, those living in the Western Isles, the Irish living in Ireland, and the Germans, so the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes, as my parents would have been taught, all coordinated to target Roman Britain. Uh, and it proved so successful that the Romans had to send a new army under Count Theodosius, who was the father of the great emperor Theodosius I, to Britain to deal with it. And actually, the references that Ammianus Marcellinus makes say that the problem is with the Ariani again, who apparently basically let the um, Picts over Hadrian's Wall and didn't try and stop them and actually sided with them. And on the back of that, the Ariani are disbanded. So it looks to me as though what you have there are exploratories, but given a colloquial local name. It's fascinating, isn't it? Trying to pick out <clears throat> who is what. I, I find it really interesting as well that I guess the size of the Roman Empire makes this essential, but there doesn't seem like these are foreigners in their eyes. They're not like Romans from Rome being given this almost privileged role of sort of special forces, are they? It's, it's interesting, though. If you look at the, uh, the, 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 the we'll talk about the Roman Empire, to be a Roman citizen before the Edict of Caracalla, which was uh, AD 213, you had to be born in Italy. So you could be a Roman, you could have all the rights of a Roman citizen if you were born out of uh, Italy and you were a free man, so you'd never been a slave. But to be called a Roman citizen, you had to be born in Italy. And then Caracalla wanting to get everyone to love him because he was psychotic. Um, <laughs> he 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 uh, had the edicts of Caracalla in three uh, in two thirteen, which made everybody within the empire's boundaries. If you were a free man, you're a Roman citizen. Um, but even then, anywhere you go with the Roman Empire, I always believe the Romans rule with a light touch. I mean, this is a pre-modern era. You can't have the emperor running everybody's lives directly, um, even with your own governors and procurators running provinces. So my view is in the Roman Empire, the empire was run with a light touch. So if you're a citizen, providing that you tipped your hat to the imperial cult uh, and admitted the emperor as a god. So when you were in the forum, you just went up to the Capitolonian temple and said, yep. Hello, Emperor, you're a, you're a god. And you paid your taxes, you crack on. Um, therefore, the further away from the imperial centre you get, providing you do those, the greater the manifestation is of your locality. So you certainly get people who thrive on their, their native, um, their native origins in Germany, on the eastern frontier, definitely in North Africa. Remember, North Africa is the richest part of the Roman Empire. 
And even at the very top of society, actually, Alex, you look at an emperor like Septimius Severus, he was North African, and uh, his, his forebears actually were, were forebears from a long way back, were Punic, Carthaginian. So he had quite a guttural local accent, actually. And although he had the finest education an elite Roman child could have, because he was at the very richest part of his local community in Rome, for the rest of his life, he chose to maintain that local guttural accent. So I think actually, uh, in many ways, many Romans thrived on having that sort of uh, a local identity. And they could do it simply because they tip the hats in the imperial court and pay the taxes. OK, so um, rumbling through protectores, that's that's a name we know. Um, who were they and what did they do? So that's the last candidate, actually, of all of the candidates that we've considered and I consider in the book. The great thing here for us, actually, Andrew, is that the Protectories um, have a famous member who happens to be Ammianus Marcellinus. So our best source for later Roman history was actually a Protectories himself. So the Protectories start off being a cadre of elite officer trainees for the Emperor Constantine I, the great um, Constantine the Great, who becomes the Emperor in 8306 in Britain. Um, the only successful usurper from Roman Britain, ultimately by 324, he's the emperor of the whole Roman Empire. And he creates this elite body, the Protectores, um, who are his elite cadre of officers. And he uses this to train up very, very loyal officers to then take over legions, etc., on his behalf. But very quickly, they start doing little jobs for him. So he starts sending them on missions to give messages and everything. And ultimately, they also become sort of an intelligence gathering resource as well. And they're by that time, they're called the Protectores Domestici. And the Protectores Domestici, by the time you get to the um, sort of Constantius II, with Paul the Chain, or you get to uh, very, very slightly later, uh, Julian the Apostate, they're actually operating on the front lines, the lemurs of the Roman Empire, uh, in an intelligence gathering capacity. And this is exactly what... Ammianus Marcellinus does. He does it operating north of the Rhine frontier, and he does it operating uh, east of the eastern frontier, deep into Persia. However, again, what I determine looking at all the examples, and we have some fabulous examples with Ammianus Marcellinus because he writes them himself, is that that umbilical is still there, in this case, to the imperial centre and the emperor. They're not operating completely independently. They've been given tasks by the emperor to do there's one example where uh, a protectores who's buried in alexandria in egypt he he uh, is given the task by the emperor in the east of escorting um uh nobles from outside the southern borders of egypt so what used to, what would have been called nubia over the border into the roman empire and ultimately to the imperial capital probably these are people being set up by the romans to be usurpers against the nubian rulers at the time but the job is specifically for the emperor and the umbilical is still there. They're not operating independently. So these, the protect stories, uh, domestici are not, I argue, special forces. So of all the candidates we consider, you've got the fermentari and the fermentum. You've got the agentesian reverse and the notari, the speculatories and the protestori domestici. They are not special forces. They're special in a way, but they're not special forces. So the only candidates I determine in my book will be called special forces today by the criteria I define are the exploratories and the Ariani in Britain. But it's just great to hear about all these specialist units anyway, because like I say, and in my kind of understanding of Roman soldiery was one of 
pretty strict uniformity, but actually all these various uh, other roles is just interesting as well as kind of hitting the definition too. One of one of the things that I had to do with the book, uh, Andrew, is I had to be very structured with it. I've thrown lots of different Latin names at you, and a lot of them are used confusingly at the same time or at different times and together and not together and so on. So I've been very clear as I, 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 I narrate my story through the book what things mean at a certain time. So when the reader reads the book, they'll be very, very clear what I'm talking about and they won't get lost in the jargon. Cool. And your book is just out, isn't it? Actually, it's out on the 29th uh, of it? April and it's called Roman Special Forces and Special Ops through Pen and Sword, available through all your usual online platforms and Waterstones and if you're in the States, Bonds and Noble and everywhere else. Beautiful. Well, Simon, this has been really, really interesting. Thank you. I always appreciate it so much when we get someone from outside my wheelhouse to come and talk about um, stuff that's interesting. So thank you very, very much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to come on and talk to you about Roman James Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll hopefully have you on on something else very soon. Thank you. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.